Hello, it's Anna Perro and Sophie Little here. We run Soundyard and we are the producers of Chris Skinner's Countryside Podcast. We're excited to tell you we've been nominated for an award. It's a public vote, so if you'd like to vote for us, well, that would just be amazing. You can head to norfolkartsawards.org. Look out for Soundyard. We're under the Broadcast and Media Award. And it's such a pleasure putting the show together and listening with you. So let's join Chris and Matthew on High Ash Farm. Chris Skinner's Countryside Podcast with Matthew Gudgeon. The last day of 2023 and we're ending on a very windy note here at High Ash Farm. We're on one of the real high spots of the farm just to the south of Norwich and Chris Skinner is as always our host and Chris uh, in advance of tomorrow happy new year and to you matthew and thank you for all your visits to high ash uh, we're on i don't know what number podcast we're getting up towards number 20 i should think uh, getting that way same as our age yes <laughs> we're both youngsters at heart and uh, this morning we've got a new addition to our team actually accompanying us he often accompanies me well he does all day every day and it's rat and he's got a job to do in a minute we're going to cross the road and uh, we're at one of the high spots on the farm. Hello, Rat. There he is. <laughs> he's, he's looking very pleased with himself. He's enjoying himself. He's enjoying it. He doesn't mind the wind and the rain. And uh, so we've got a panoramic view of a lot of South Norfolk and Norwich behind us. I can see the cathedral. Um, I can see the Roman Catholic Cathedral as well through the trees there. And it's really undulating countryside. The Roman town, uh, the capital of Eastern Britain, is down in the valley there, uh, right next to us. And we're right next to a little road and all the permissive walks here at High Ash Farm. Turn around, the sun's shining very low this morning, just past the shortest day. And in front of us is about an acre of teasel seed, uh, teasel plants, I should say. And they've already shed their seed on the ground. And we're going to walk out into the crop, which is the other side, which is called Overwinter Wild Bird Seed Mix. Uh, oh, there's a big sign here, right beside us, explaining what it is. How could that possibly have got there? <laughs> and so, Rat already is, is impatient to get going. Yes, he certainly is. He's going off through the teasels, and we'll follow him. Here we go. Oh. Teasels are looking rather menacing with their prickly heads. As we make our way through this fringe of the field and out onto the overwinter mix of oh, what's that? have we got here? A, uh, oh, a pheasant. There's, there's a hen pheasant, and oh. there's a cock pheasant flew up immediately beside it, and another another hen pheasant right in front of us. So rats away. Uh, he's been unleashed, and uh, this is his job to try and find some of the wildlife out here. And the crop is teeming with wildlife and it's our job to actually see it but we're looking into the sun which is making it a little bit more difficult than normal this is a large field isn't it yes this is about 10 hectares uh, about 25 acres and there's still 
and ears of triticale. It's a cross between wheat and rye and they're still bearing lots of seed and there's masses of small seeds here underneath the crop as well. And look here, Brad stopped and he's sniffing and there's a track through the crop and that's made by deer. And there's a species of deer which is now more common in East Anglia than it is in China where it comes from and it's Chinese water deer and they're doing really well. They were introduced in the really early 1900s by oh, the is that one there? Duke of Bedford. Where are you? I could see one move, something moving. Yes, well spotted. Look at that. It's running away from us. In the th and it's putting up pheasants. It's two. Yes. Yes, in, yes, two. One in front of And they're the species you were talking that, about. Well, I, you can't make this up as though we'd <laughs> planned this. Rat's got his head up. He can, the wind's coming towards us, and so he can scent them. Quite small deer, very petite for deer, and it's about the only species, Matthew, that doesn't have antlers. So we'll walk on a little bit. Hope the wind's not too noisy on the microphone. Yeah, it's blowing a real hooly um, this morning. Yes. But it's a nice bright morning as well. The sun's coming up, and uh, enjoying ourselves out into the middle of the field. Probably not as much as rat is. Yeah, he's, he's loving this. So, Chinese water deer, now quite common, sort of got into Broadland in Norfolk. Um, so often associated near water. And not much bigger than a large fox, actually. It's one of the smaller species of deer. Um, about a six-month gestation period. And unusually for deer, many of our native species only give birth to one maybe two with roe deer youngsters fawns with chinese water deer in their home territory in china they <laughs> they give birth to a litter five and even six young fawns they all kind of huddle together for a few days and then they can run and jump uh, quite happily after a week old and they're covered in sort of white spots on the coat and they're really common here at Hyasham. One field on the other side of the farm had 12 Chinese water deer in, in January um, this 2023, so more or less a year ago. And, uh, and they were brought here as an ornamental species? Yes, they were. The Duke of Bedford uh, was very keen on deer species at Woburn and uh, he introduced firstly the monk jack deer, Chinese monk jack, and uh, they escaped, so did the Chinese water deer, and they frequented the parkland around Woburn and then spread out from there, and that's the deer you're most likely to see. Chinese water deer um, are much more harder to see. We were lucky to see those two just then, and I'll shock you that we're probably standing near a dozen of them out in this field, quite large mammals. And uh, soon, in, once you get to April, they'll be giving birth to their fawns. So this crop will be gone by then, and there'll be another crop here. But if we walk on a bit, we might... Oh, yeah. Yellowhammer just come out and is flying over almost into the sun. Oh, and two skylarks above us as well. We've put those out, I didn't even realise, just hovering up in the sky there, about 50 feet up. One just singing just then. There is just it is so... mild today, it's about 12 degrees. Yes. Oh, that, that was nice. Just uh, 
sort of. Well, there's some more hovering going yes, on there. Yes, just keeping your eyes on the ground in, in the air at the same time. And very much a sound of summer, but in fact, they do sing all the year round. Yes, they, they? they will do, yes. They're very successful here, and this is an ideal crop for them because it's like a. It's so dense. It's like a little microclimate down there, and uh, so once they're down in the in the crop, uh, the wind isn't blowing like it is today, and it's quite mild. And there's soil invertebrates down there. There's lots of seeds on the ground, and uh, if we walk on a bit, we might see. Oh, look! There's several just got. <laughs> look at this skylarks galore, and that's typical of them. Oh wow! The the sky's full of skylarks. Their song is being taken away on the breeze somewhat, but yes. I can, I'm getting it some. And they're all normally just down in this cover, That's which is right. about knee height. This is the advantage of Rack being with us. He's uh, doing a real good job sort of putting things out of the crop. Well done, Rack. No. It's sort of brackled over a bit here. The soil type's just changed. We walked on from sandy soil onto clay, and it's a little bit more dense. Another skylark there. Typical of skylarks this time of the year. Birds with a feather flock together. Look at that! You've got eight, nine in front of us. They're all whirling around. Yes. So they, flo they flock together more at this time of the year. At this time of the year, and then they'll set up territories I think we should learn a lesson. Another one just got up right beside us. But the wind is behind us. They're flying into the wind and staying in one spot in front of us. Uh, ground nesting birds and thriving at the farm because of all the grassland. We don't cut the hay till quite late, till it's lost a lot of its nutrition. So they have time to bring out one, even two broods. Oh, you couldn't make this up. It's such a wonderful sight. A red list species, of course. Well, they're thriving here at High Ash. Look at that. Wow, sky's full of them. Good old rat. Yes, he's, a, he's earned a treat at lunchtime, I think, for this. I can't actually see him. Oh, there he is. He's over there. If we walk on a bit, because there's lots of other bird species here, we've come onto the clay. The ground's wet underneath us, although we're on a hillside. And uh, there's woodcocks spend the day out here as well. Normally they'll retreat to the woodland, but because the cover is so good here, the ground is sheltered, so even if we had frost, it probably wouldn't freeze. So the woodcock, which is a sort of waving bird, deserted the seashores, if you like, and estuaries, and has moved inland, can probe into the wet soil. And this ground is because the humus level, the organic content in the soil has rocketed for the last 10 or 15 years since we've been growing crops like this. Um, there's, oh, rats, rats found something What here. have you found? He's scratching away at the earth. There, if you put the microphone there, he's going to put his nose down in a hole. Let's have a listen. He's a good digger, isn't he? What have you got? Right, so what he's done, he's opened a hole up. I think there's a long-tailed field mouse there. 
uh, deep in the ground, little pile of soil. And of course, there's so many seeds here. The mammal population, the small mammal population, is very, very high. So he's opened the hole up and he's put his nose down it and he's sniffing right down and he's saying something's there because I'm watching his tail and he lives in another world Matt he lives in the world of scent much more than sight and so he, he's very confident there's something down there does he ever <laughs> catch anything though? no no he's the world's worst moser oh he's having a real good dig now Goes, uh, away. I've been sent a, a letter to say, asking me politely to keep him out of rabbit holes so he doesn't get into trouble like he did the other week. But we can walk on because, oh, look, just the flock of skylark is still in front of us. They're it. quite low now. Yes, they? they are. Oh, that's absolutely incredible. I think his rat is a terrier, and that's what terriers do, isn't yes, it? Yes, he's pretty harmless, but he's very good at scooching round in a crop like this on days like this when you want to see the wildlife and he doesn't harm anything he's very very good here's, <laughs> there he is talking of which here's rat what did you find rat <laughs> a sky like 20 feet from us then just got up and it's almost hovering in front of us but you'll never get closer to a sky like than that matthew uh, really is terrific to see in this low sun <laughs> oh up, 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 up more 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 <laughs> This We've probably a, got 50, 60 on this field alone. It's a haven for yes, that species. It is. A lot of people get really depressed about the environment and uh, nature is there. It just needs a little bit of encouragement in order to thrive and to come back. And when you get sites like this, this is the payback for me, if you like. It's uh, having that mixture of wildlife. Modern phrase is biodiversity, I suppose you'd call it. But it's just nature returning here as it as it should do. So your job is to put the habitat in and, and, and a certain nat- element of the feed n- as well? Na- yes, nature will do the rest. It will bring itself back. Two yellow hammers with them now. Just going to land back there at the front of the, the skylark flock. And two smaller birds just going along and they're a pair of yellow hammers. And they're flocking up as well, so the numbers will now increase. Anyway, we're going to cross fields in a minute and just go down a row of oak trees because there's something I want to show you. Let's go. Well, we've crossed the road and come a few hundred yards and slightly down the hill, um, not far actually away from your lake here, Chris, but uh, we're in, on, on the edge of a field and, and <laughs> Rat is still in his element. Yes, he's walking along, this time with a stick in his mouth. He's, he's very, very pleased to, uh, with this arrangement this morning to come along and accompany us. And he knows, he seems to know he's doing a really good job of doing what rats do or terriers should I say and we're standing beside uh, a lovely avenue of mature oak trees here at High Ash Farm there's about a dozen down here they're quite famous they introduced a country-wide program on 
the television a few years ago and my son was here with a kestrel and uh, the kestrel flew off and that introduced a whole series of television programs and these trees featured every week and they've become quite famous really. It's among your pride and joy on the farm, this, this row here. Yes, absolutely. And so we don't cultivate near the trees at all. There's about eight metres each side of the trees of rough grass and it's absolutely full of small mammals. There's tussocking grass there, uh, full of wildflowers as well and it's all brackled over at the moment. All the oak leaves on the ground? Yes, the leaves are still there. And, uh, well, you look round and I know we saw all the skylarks, the yellow hammers, the deer, but uh, the countryside, once you know where to look and how to look, it's full of, absolutely full of wildlife. And the sheep were on here grazing about two weeks ago and they've eaten all the ivy leaves off the bottom, what, four or five feet of the oak trees. They've done quite a neat job there. And in fact, the clue is the, the wool that is left <laughs> yes. in some of the ivy there. Yes, and that's, of course, brilliant nesting material in the spring. It's sort of caught on to the ivy that surrounds the oak tree. And all the oaks here are covered in ivy and uh, still lots of berries on there for the winter visiting thrushes to eat. Little black coloured berries, all with ivy seeds in them. But I always like you to come in closer and take that second look. So I'm just gonna part the little wash boughs, they're called. The ones that sort of grow right close to the tree in low down twigs and we'll get in close. It's a terrific pattern that the, the, the ivy makes, isn't it? Now it's revealed by the sheep grazing and oh my goodness look you're right <laughs> we have shells we have snails <laughs> we have snails and down this row of avenue of oak trees i've done a bit of an estimate for you there's well over a quarter of a million snails and we're looking at perhaps two thousand here in front of us all and, shapes and, and sizes the more that you look the more you see the whole bark of the tree is covered in hibernating snails. So and they've just got in as, this, as deeply this, as they can. This might the suit you, Matthew, because they spend six months of the year asleep uh, <laughs> and sort of hibernate So through the cold weather, which I know you don't particularly like, but it is plastered with snails. And some of the adults have come in with this year's youngsters on their backs. Oh, those <laughs> are the tiny little... Yes, yes, that's all this year's offspring. And something has happened. All these here. ones here as well. Yes, look, they're just one-year-old snails, which are perfect mimics of their parents. No, less than a quarter of an inch across. Yes, some of them not much larger than a head of a match. And the adults, these are two or three years old ones that my index finger's just on. And then all around them just got in, and then another layer of snails coming on top of the hibernating layer, and then another layer. So some of these patches of snails are three or four inches deep. Um, it's just extraordinary when you look in, and the more that you look, the more that you see. And they, they're nearly always on the northeastern side of the tree, the coldest side, so they don't get the winter sun on them to warm them up. So this will be in the shade very shortly as the sun moves around. It's almost due south at the moment, and in an hour or so it will be southwesterly. And it's just the sun's just come out beautifully. and actually illuminating the patterns on their shells and they look beautiful. Matthew, nearly 
every county in England has its own nickname <laughs> for rat. What are you doing in there? <laughs> for snails in Norfolk, we call them Dodmans, and the reason is a do- <laughs> rat has gone down a hole under the oak tree. <laughs> rat, what? Oh no. The reason they're called Dodmans are Dodmans are sort of very ancient surveyors, and uh, they used to carry their tools each side of their head. They're sort of levelling bars, we call them, and uh, so snails seem to have these very long antennae with their eyes on the end of the antennae, and so that's where the name Dodman came from, and also the Romany gypsies um, that really thought it was unlucky if you harmed a snail in any way because snails kind of take their houses with them and Romany gypsies thought that they were very similar, that they took their houses with them wherever they went when they travelled about. The secret is that I was a sugar beet grower here and to grow sugar beet you need quite a high lime content, at least neutral in the soil, 6.5, ideally 7 or 7.5 pH, we call it, which is a measure of the lime content in the soil. And I started using uh, it was the, the local lime sludge, which is used for filtering the sugar um, at the local sugar beet factory, and it's top quality Derbyshire limestone and it's brought down to the low, all the sugar beet factories use it and the waste uh, farmers can buy it back and have it spread on the ground and it's perfect because it's really high quality and you can bump your pH back up uh, to where it should be to suit sugar beet in a rotation. And the snails like it? And cost snail shells are made of calcium and so this is why in heathland, acidic heathland, you do see a few species but far far fewer. And so these snails, there's no molluscicides used on the farm at all. And so we don't do anything to control the mollusks, which is what snails are. And uh, they're absolutely thriving. And this time of the year, they've completed their massive migration. We're always interested in birds like swallows, which go right down to South Africa. And for me, the snails do a similar kind of journey because they're right out on the other side of this field and they crawl all the way across and they have traditional hibernating places. So these larger ones will come back here winter after winter? Winter after winter. They can live several years. But also uh, we have lots of small mammals here which feed on them and birds as well. It's a favourite food of our song thrush. And when you look down on the ground, Matthew... (laughs) This is a little bit of a graveyard down here. Can you listen the other way, you snails, so you don't hear this? There's fragments of snail shells all over the ground. The ground almost looks white, as though it's been hailed on. And they're fragments of snail shell. And they're shrews um, that are eating them, and birds that peck them. And so they're, they're good food as well. And even wrens will come in and peck the centre out. The wrens crawl in, in amongst the ivy. And if a snail's facing the wrong way, the wren will eat that as well. Well, we're standing up against this, uh, this, this tree. Um, and, and about head height is the highest snail I've seen. So they're quite good climbers. Oh, they'll go right well, up. Uh, uh, higher, they, they, actually, oh, they'll yes. go right up. Some of the trees have got them up 
15, 20 feet up in the ivy. And the ones just, that survive are the ones that will really get into the, the crevices. Yes, just walk round here a little bit, Matthew. Excuse me, rat, so I won't tread on your be, tail. You'll be even more impressed. Look, look in here. Just unbelievable. Dozens and, dozens and it's almost as though they're so tight they can't get back out. But they don't actually grow during the winter months and they're all fast asleep. So uh, it's just a wonderful sight. It's so easy to walk past and miss it, and yet it's a, a really important part of our natural environment. So when spring comes, they reactivate yes, themselves. Yes, look, there's, there's a, an adult there, and it's got two tiny youngsters attached to it. So whether they sort of hitched a ride to save them doing this massive migration across the field here, or whether they arrived under their own steam, but the population at the farm here is absolutely absolutely huge. So that's all part of biodiversity. It all fits together like a magic jigsaw puzzle when you have all these different species all living in a particular area and that's exactly what we're trying to do at the farm here. Just how it should be I would like to say. Lescargo for breakfast. I thought you'd say this. No, they're just the, what we call the Roman snails. And they are huge. They've got shells about two inches across, 50 millimetres across. And we think the Romans introduced those uh, as part of their diet. But these are common garden snails that you'll see anywhere in the English countryside. And would you like a coffee? Oh, I'd love a coffee. Oh, I can have a coffee. I'll just get inside the farm pick up. We just ordered our coffees. There's a coffee vendor here these days, Chris. You've yes. got every mod coffee. Of course, Matthew. You can expect nothing else, yes. So we both ordered a couple, and uh, hopefully they'll arrive in a few minutes' time. Well, we loved reading all your Christmas cards, and they've still been filtering in. And uh, thank you to everyone who sent uh, one in to Hayash Farm. And there's a lovely note here with it as well. Oh, yeah. Bonnie Van Dyne, West Chicago... Illinois, USA. Well, they certainly get wildlife up there or near the Great Lakes. and Yeah, that's, that's a terrific note to say, uh, Dear Chris and Matthew, thank you for continuing on with your wonderful podcast, your keen insights, enthusiasm, knowledge and appreciation, and all that is Norfolk is inspiring. Isn't that lovely? Thank yes. you for that. A nice thank you card. Lovely. Just so heartwarming to know that uh, it's appreciated across the world hello to michael and judith thank you for your christmas card from sussex we wanted to send a card to say how much we've enjoyed you and matthew's program for years and there's a oh there's a lovely uh, gray partridge no it's one. a french partridge i'll have you know in a pear tree <laughs> <laughs> i wonder where that came from oh, and here's one of a, a robin behaving itself on the front of a christmas card Oh, and there's quite a long note here yes. from Sharon. Hello, Sharon. And uh, Strangford Lock. Yes, and an egret near where I live in County Down. Thank you, Sharon, very much indeed. And a lovely note to go with it as well, saying thank you very much. Anne Gorham says, Last summer we were lucky enough to have swallows nesting in an outhouse in North Norfolk for the second year running. A much more successful year than the previous year when they struggled to build a nest at all. 
this time we've had a proper natural nest left behind to remind us of these welcome lodgers. Now we're wondering how best to welcome them back next spring. Could you advise whether we're best to leave the nest completely alone or remove it so that they can start afresh? Right, I'd certainly recommend that you leave the nest alone. If you're really keen, you can buy false nests as well, but put it some distance away from the original one. And swallows will use their nest year after year. I've got some false ones at the farm that, which are made out of cement and paper mache all mashed up together they look a little bit crude but they're nearly all used uh, each year and the swallows come back occasionally I clean them out and occasionally you'll find little flea-like objects in their feather lice they're called and they spend the winter there and will often hibernate but don't worry about those I've yet to see a swallow or a house martin or a swift without feather lice creeping in and out of their feathers so just enjoy them you're really really lucky to have such beautiful birds close to where you live Thanks very much for the letter, Anne. And oh, our coffees have arrived. What about hey, this? Wonderful. There we go. Thank you very much. Is that the? That's the one for me. That's yours. Oh, and, and thank you very much. Yours. Brilliant. Thank you. No that's sugar. really good. No, thank you. No, no. Yeah, wow, it's fine. Enjoy. Thank you. <laughs> well, this is it's all part of the service this morning. You're isn't telling it? me. Yes, we're starting off in the new year as we mean to carry on. <laughs> Luxury. <laughs> um, Jules, Jules Alderson, says I was in Jordan last month. My word. And uh, we saw quite a few of the birds that I sent you a photograph of here flying around a castle, Shobak Castle. Any idea what they might be? It looks like they could be sand martins. Well, I had a very, very close look at the photographs that you sent. You sent one of two birds and one of a single bird. And uh, almost without doubt, they're house martins. Now, I looked on the map and sort of studied where Jordan is. It's right at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, very typically, it looks like a house martin. Not Very elegant say, looking little yes, birds. Yes, they are. They? Now, the difference is um, house martins have a sort of blue-black blue colour on their backs and a white rump. And sand martins don't have that. They're uniformly brown. And also, the sand martins have a little chest strap just beneath the, the neck going across their chest. And the birds pictured that you sent, although the photographs aren't completely brilliant, they are absent, those chest marks. So it looks very much like house martins, and they have a slightly different route. If those birds have come down from somewhere like Germany, more across in Eastern Europe, they will have a different migration route down. Uh, our house martins will follow the east coast of Spain and come down across Tunisia and down to Senegal and spend the winter there around the mangrove swamps and other house martins will use different migratory route and might sort of spend the winter down in uh, Africa in a different spot but we're still learning Matthew so much about our world so much about bird movements and where they spend our winter because they are strictly insectivorous birds and uh, so that's why they have to leave our shores in the winter months and almost certainly what you've photographed are house martins and they're on a different migration route to the ones from the uk Joe Campbell has emailed the uh, podcast. Uh, Joe, thank you for the email and photograph here because it, it really is a gorgeous photo. Um, he says, just like to share our sunrise. We're at Headley on the Hill in Northumberland 
and the clouds you can see are anacreous, rare, so beautiful. Merry Christmas, Chris, and Happy New Year from Catherine and Joseph, Headley on the Hill. Yes, and I've looked at the pictures and I'm very jealous. I've been looking out for these particular cloud formations with all the colours in them and it just looks like sort of looking at opal when you see all the colours in an opal stone, a precious stone. And you see pinks and greens and blues and um, all sorts of different colours. Very ethereal. That, and, isn't it? and it's way up there, about two or three times the height that aircraft fly. And it's ice crystals up in the upper atmosphere. And the sunlight at a particular time of day reflects off those ice crystals and makes these glorious patterns, almost rainbow colours in the sky, but much more delicate. And that's why it's so beautiful. Thank you for those photographs. Richard, Natalie and Laurelyn Bartlett. They live quite close to here uh, with a couple of questions. They're, they're quite new um, listeners to the podcast, so you're very welcome. We found a couple of concrete and flint remnants in a dell between the church and the main car park in Cringleford and wondered if you know what they were. We're looking on various maps and not found any record of them. Some of the concrete looks later, maybe 19th century, but it looks like the origins may be older. Yes, it's actually down here at Caestus and Edmund between the church and the car park, so it's only a few hundred yards from where we are. Ah, so they live in Cringleford, yes. but uh, cycled over from yes, there. Yes, they cycle to High Ash, as you do. Very good indeed. Good brownie points there. And it is part of the old Roman town wall, which surrounded the Roman town, which is only a few hundred yards away from where we're sitting this morning. And uh, parts of the wall fell down uh, because it was quite monumental. In places, the wall was 20, 25 feet tall and six or seven feet thick. Uh, an amazing structure. And some of the parts are still visible today. And the Roman town, as well as High Ash Farm, which is on the other side of the road, are both open to the public. And at the moment, it's all free access. And uh, the second question was, can, can they bike here? Is it yeah, on, you, on the paths? Not on the paths. It's all because um, it's so hilly and some of the soil types are so variable. When you cycle on, you make a little groove in the ground as opposed to footprints. And so when you get these heavy rain events, the water runs down these little cycle tracks and forms little rivers, rivulets, and actually cuts the soil out. So we, you know, we don't mind wheelchairs at all. That's completely all right, and we look forward to that. Wheelchair access is allowed, but no motorbikes and no cycles at the moment. <laughs> look all around us, Matthew. <laughs> We've got lots of people. We, we must be famous this morning. Well, we're, we're, everybody's arriving for a walk. When we arrived 20 minutes ago, people hadn't quite shaken a leg, but we're in that period between Christmas and New Year yes. where people are a little bit more Yes, slow. And they're all going off uh, walking, dog walking, and just enjoying the countryside. Julian Lawrence will wish you good luck because he's trying to plant some mistletoe, as you mentioned last week. Yes, ah, a little comment on that because he's not been successful, but he's been making little nicks into the bark of the apple trees. Now, the question is, do missile thrushes, who are very successful at seeding trees, do they do that? The answer is no. And so what you do, you find fairly young apple growth, um, a twig or something like that, and just pop the berry on that. But when you look carefully at wood at this time of the year, uh, you'll see there's a kind of green coating on it, and that's called pleurococcus. It's an algae, 
and mistletoe doesn't like germinating on that. So I use my thumbnail, not to scratch the bark off, but just to polish the little twig. Take away some of that green powder. Yeah, that's right. That's all you need to do. Plaster the berry on that. It's quite an art form to get your fingers away and leave the little seed, which is embedded in the, the sort of mucus of the, the, the berry itself. And if you can do that and leave the seed there, it then retracts itself as the little gelatin part dries and uh, it will then put out roots called haustoria and that's how it is but don't injure the bark before you you put the seed on and here's one from Richard who lives in Brig in North Lincolnshire interesting to hear you talking about winter moths last week Chris got me wondering if female winter moths are wingless how would they reach new oak trees that's a really really good question I made me scratch my head for a few minutes and then I realized that they actually are quite mobile on the ground when they come out of their pupa uh, they will go to the nearest tree usually but not always in the right direction so they can walk about on the ground but you're quite right they won't cover large distances and the other thing that uh, they can get mobile with is the exact time of the year when they lower themselves down from the oak canopy on little invisible like threads spider web threads if you like they lower themselves down to the ground so they don't get injured and then they pupate in the ground but when you have windy April or May days they can blow quite a considerable distance on their threads and that's how they move about but they then need to find a new oak tree but they don't just use oaks as well they will use other trees and um, my father used to put bands around all the apple trees in the farm orchard to stop the winter moths going up because <laughs> and there are several other moth species which will actually burrow into apples as well so you get maggots in your apples and he used to use either tar bands or different sorts of chemicals in the band to stop the winter moth females going up the trees uh, and defoliating the the canopy as well and uh, lastly for the emails this week sarah murray who lives in california a wow. <laughs> san diego <laughs> um and she's asking you something you mentioned already today uh, she says you refer to case to St Edmunds or Ventura Isonorum is the Roman capital of eastern England um, she says I was born in Colchester and we rather thought that was us oh right that's and actually London isn't it the, Colchester this is proper East Anglia the, this up here. Is ah well the answer to this question you know I'm very good at dodging questions is that we're both right <laughs> the, uh, the Roman occupation divided the countryside up into different areas you can look the word up in the dictionary it's for the garrisons it's called a canton Right, so that then means that Caestus and Edmund, or Venter Isonorum, was the actual capital of the Iceni tribe here. The Romans invaded and then built the Roman town, we think, on, on top of a lot of the Iceni buildings that were here before. And that then became the Roman capital of Eastern Britain. And uh, so in Colchester, a similar capital in a different region. So we're Eastern England here and um, lots of... Oh, we're surrounded by lots and lots of people with children and dogs on leads. Look at that for a <laughs> glorious sight. So that's the Roman town just at the bottom of the hill. As I said, that's open to the public and you can walk around and marvel at some of the construction which the, the Romans... Romans did. There's some of the walls still left. Yes, there don't, is. Don't expect it to be like when you go to Naples. And... <laughs> no, not at all, because 
Norwich is the other side of the woodland there, and there's a city wall which encompasses a lot of the original town of Norwich. And there's a very old saying saying, Caister was a town before Norwich was one, and Norwich was built from Caister stone. And so the walls got robbed because it was easy building materials and it was just taken a few miles further inland. And we think then the river traffic, whether the Tass, which is the river that flows past the Roman town, silted up. But then we had the River Yare and that was much more navigable. And much of the Roman occupation, the materials that they needed came up by sea and by river. So, there we are, we're both right, they're both Roman capitals, but in different Canton districts. Sarah, you'll have heard of Queen Boadicea. Um, she was a Norfolk gal. She uh, certainly uh, was. She caused rather a bit of damage, didn't she, in Colchester, she, and then burnt uh, London to the ground as yes, well. Yes, she did, yes. Yeah. Uh, she had red hair and she was rather fiery. So, uh, And uh, we opened a big walk here, and I'm looking right at the top corner of the farm on, across two valleys and two hills, and that's Boudicca Way, or Bodicea Way, and it goes right from Thorpe Station in Norwich right down to South Norfolk, and I was one of the original sponsors of that walk. So there we are, Queen Bodica, and she arrived here on a horse. Um, so uh, an amazing Icelandic horse. It was such a sight to see her all dressed up, and we got a double-page spread in the local press. Emails for future episodes of this podcast. And the address is chris at countrysidepodcast.co.uk. Join us again when it will be 2024. I can barely believe it. We've been doing this for about 30 years now, haven't we? Yeah, we certainly have. I'm going to have my my uh, latte here before it gets too cold. And Rat has behaved himself yeah, marvellously. He has. He's sat he? down in the footwell there. He's looking at you rather suspiciously. He was licking your honeycomb here. Was he? Little so-and-so. Wow, look, yes, we've been given a chunk of honey by the beekeeper, which is just at the bottom of the hill here, and it's still in the comb. He's given us two pots here, and there's one for you. I hope you've got a sweet tooth. It still has not been abstracted, so it's still in the comb. It's natural comb honey from the field right in front of us, the pollen and nectar field here at High Ash Farm. Happy New Year, Matthew, and everybody and everybody who listens to. This is a Sound Yard production. Music is by Tom Harris. <laughs>